We are going to be taking our reading from Romans chapter 8, verse 12 to 17. And it says, So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. Today we are going to be talking about the Spirit's work. And when I mean work, I mean it's an abbreviation of what the Spirit does. And we are going to be looking at this under five headings, five points. The Spirit's killing, the Spirit's leading, the Spirit's adoption, the Spirit's witness, and the Spirit's glory. The Spirit's killing. If you notice in verse 12 to 13, it says, Therefore, so brothers, we are being not debtors to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you go on living according to the flesh, you are being about to die. But if by the Spirit you go and put it to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Therefore implies the conclusion that God, going, uh, God is going to give life to your mortal bodies is this. This is the conclusion that you get when you have considered what God is going to do at the resurrection. So because God is going to give life to your mortal bodies, because God is going to resurrect your bodies, because God has made your spirit alive, you are not a debtor to the flesh. You don't owe the flesh anything. So if you don't owe the flesh anything, don't live according to what it takes. Even the book of Proverbs says, a borrower is a slave to the lender. God has paid your debt, so you are not a slave or you are not a slave or a debtor to the flesh. You are now indebted to God. So live according to his spirit, not your flesh. Paul says, if you go on living according to the flesh, you are being about to die. You are digging your own early grave. You can't make it to heaven by living like that. You can't make it to heaven by living according to your fleshy desires. Living according to like hell and going to heaven is not possible. Because the desires of your heart are very, very sinful. The desires of your flesh are very, very sinful. They are sinful passions. You can read Ephesians 2, verse 1 to 2. It talks about people being dead in their sins and the way they live their life just according to the desires of their flesh. They're in bondage to the flesh. So there's no way you will live like that. 
and live. You are being about to die. You are killing yourself and you do not know it. And if you go on living like that, you will soon find out that you are spiritually dead. That you have gotten spiritually dead. So people ask questions that can a born again be unborn? What they fail to ask is if a born again can die. Now you notice in the next text it says but. But. I love that word but. He has given us this warning that if we go on being obligated, feeling that we are obligated to the flesh and living according to the flesh, if we go on living according to the flesh, you are being about to die. That is a warning. That you should not go on living according to the flesh, to your fleshy desires, to your sinful passions. No. Don't go on living according to what your body says you should do. Your body is entirely wrong. Then it gives us a way out. It gives us a solution in the bot. And it says, it says, if by the spirit you go on putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You go on. Go on means continuous tense. It's an, it's an everyday thing. It's a continuous thing. Every day you go on to to the world, you go and put it to death the deeds of the flesh because they keep on coming. You go and put it to death one by one, keep keeping subduing the body because you are the master over your own body. Put to death, you mortify the deeds of the body. So the Christian is a murderer, is a killer. But who is he a killer of? Is a killer of his own self. The believer is a murderer of his own flesh. And the same way you are put to death to the Lord through the body of Christ, you are put to put to death the deeds of your body through the Spirit. The deeds of the body simply implies the actions of your body. It doesn't say you should come and be beating your body very hard. To mortify sin. No, that's not what you have to do. It doesn't say asceticism that you should go far away from the world or go into fastings or go into so and so. It's almost religious practices. Or you should crawl or go to some purgatory or do some punishment. Or you should walk on um, shakul or to kill sin. He said you have to mortify the deeds of the body. He didn't say you should mortify the body. He didn't say you should kill your body. He said mortify the deeds, the actions of the body. That's what you have to mortify. It doesn't say you should flog your body. Or it doesn't even give some rules that we he said it doesn't even say we should kill the deeds of the body by some kind of rules, by some kind of moralism. Do this, do that, do this, do that. You make some kind of accountability to try and block the sin from coming out. I'm not saying all those rules that you make are bad. They are not bad, but that's not what you're saying that can kill the sin. There are some times that maybe if you are, if you are um, 
struggling with porn addiction, pornographic addictions, people will tell you that go and instead of anytime you feel like watching porn, just go and read the, your Bible, read one book. All those things are good. But you have not still addressed the root of that sin in the heart. You have not still addressed the root cause. So if there's no Bible around him, what should he not do? He would have to still give in to the to the temptation of the porn. Because he has simply diverted the energy into another thing, which is not bad. But this sin has not been finally mortified. It's still there, it's still looking around. And on that way, at uh, that time, it could be triggered. So the sin, those deeds of the flesh, has to be mortified. That they can't be awakened through another means. When you have truly killed it, then that time that you usually spend in order your version of pornography, you can spend it in studying the word and a prayer. Now he says. It gives us a particular weapon that we are to use for modifying the deeds of the body. And it says you are to use the spirit as your weapon to murder the actions of your body. To modify the actions of your body. What are the deeds? What are the deeds of the flesh? What are the actions of the body that he's talking about here? Galatians 5 verse 19 to 21 gives us a picture of the kind of actions he's talking about. It says the deeds of the flesh are evident. So one thing we should all agree on is that the deeds of the flesh are sin. They are not invisible. They are something that is manifested that everyone can see. Just the same way the fruit of the Spirit is evident to everyone, can be seen by everyone, if you have the fruit of the Spirit, it's the same way the deeds of the flesh can be seen by everyone. So that's one thing Paul first says. He wants us to agree with that, that the deeds of the flesh are evident. It's not something that is unseen that you can hide. Paul doesn't say they are hidden. The same way you can't hide the fruit of the Spirit. If it's there, it will show. You can't hide the deeds of the flesh. We know certainly this is the deeds of the flesh. So if you're, you can know what the deeds of the flesh is, then you can modify it. If you know what your enemy is, if you know how you can see your enemy, then you can kill it. It's very, very hard to kill something that is invisible. But something that is visible is very, very easy to kill. Now, he says the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality. It could be sexual immorality. It could be Anything that is not right, anything that is not moral, that's what he's saying here. Doing wrong things, stealing, encouraged from stealing to killing to covetousness, those are evident. If someone is greedy, you will know. The way they live their lifestyles, you will know that they are greedy. It's not something that can be hidden. Maybe the person may be deceived in his own heart, but it's evident to everyone outside that this person is greedy. If someone is living a uh, sexual immoral life, you will know, everyone will know that this person is fornicating or this person is adulterous. It will be so evident. Impurity, sensuality, idolatry, 
if someone has an idol in, a heart, in his or her heart, they would know. And people will know that this is their idols. They've made their career their idols. They've made marriage their idols. They've made their family their idols. They've made their schoolwork their idols. These are the deeds of the flesh. This is what the, the flesh always tends us to go. To make idols of things above God. To put anything above God. That is what the flesh is always designed. It says sorcery, which is basically witchcraft. Enemies always wanting us to quarrel with each other. Have a lot of enemies, cutting off people. Strife, argument, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, people who cause divisions. These are the deeds of the flesh. Envy, drunkenness. That is the deed of the flesh, getting drunk, carousing, and things like this. These are the deeds of the flesh that are evident. We cannot see them in our life. If you are stealing, you know. If, if you are uh, cursing with your mouth, if you are speaking uh, vulgar language with your mouth, you will know these are the deeds of the flesh. It's very evident for everyone to see. And Paul says, of which I forewarned you, just as I have forewarned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, how do you do this killing? How do you do this mortifying of the deeds of the flesh now that we know what they are? The first one is the spirit works through our mind to do this. Colossians 3.5 says, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amount to idolatry. So you see here, it calls those deeds of the flesh out. Those deeds of the flesh that we have seen in Galatians 5. In here he's saying, he brings them out. And he says, first of all, you consider the members of your earthly body as dead to these deeds of the flesh. That is the first way you work it out. You consider yourself, I am dead to stealing. I am dead to pornographic additions. I am dead to sexual lust. I am dead to uh, sexual immorality. I am dead to speaking vulgar language. I am dead to uh, outburst of anger. I am dead to envy. I am dead to strife. I am dead to causing divisions among people. You consider it, you reckon it, you ponder over these things, and you walk, you walk it straight from your mind. It's not all about, first of all, doing this, doing this. You look at the root cause of this sin in your mind. The Holy Spirit will take you dead through your mind to see how, does, how is this sin still locking it? How can we kill it from the mind? Every sin has to be killed from the mind. And notice it says, all these sins amount to idolatry. 
So the, the basic thing is that consider in your mind God as your priority. God is above all. And when God is above all, you'll be able to consider your members of your body dead to these things. Because every sin is basically at the root is idolatry. You have put something above God one way or another. Yeah, because you have chosen the, the flesh word over God's word. Over what God says. So you have to walk into your mind, consider it, reckon it, and say, my body is dead to this deed. Secondly, the Holy Spirit does this through the word of God. You multiply the flesh, the deeds of the body, sorry, through the word of God. Hebrews 4.12 For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So the word of God can show you the intentions of your heart. As you are studying the Word of God, as you are meditating upon the Word of God, as you are reading it, the Word of God is reading you. The Word of God is doing an art, uh, a heart surgery upon you. Looking at the intention of your heart and judging it. That is why sometimes when you study the Word of God and you've been wondering that, I thought I was really doing this thing from a pure motive. But the Word of God just shows you that there was an evil motive behind what you were doing. There was an evil intention. It says the word of God judges the intentions and thoughts of the heart. He's able to divide soul and spirit. So he's able to look at your heart and do a heart check on it. And show you the intention. What is the root cause that is leading to this sin? And when it does that, it doesn't leave you that way. The Word of God also does a total operation within you. In cleansing those sins out. In bringing those deeds of the flesh out. That you do not obey them anymore. The Word of God sanctifies. John 17 verse 17 says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is the truth. Ephesians 5.23 says, So that in my sanctify I have cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Say, sanctify them in the truth. So if you are staying in the word, it, it sanctifies you. You are able to mortify the deeds of the flesh. That's why you see a lot of people, a lot of believers who have gotten astray, gotten far from the word. You start seeing a kind of, you start seeing it in their life. If, if there's someone who is not staying in the world, you see it being marked in their lives, the way they live their lifestyle. They start giving in to the flesh. They start giving in to the deeds of the flesh. They start living sinful lifestyle. All because they have despised the word of God. They've not given time to be in the word of God. It's inside the word of God that we are being sanctified. The psalmist says, your word, Psalm 119 verse 11 says, your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Have you treasured God's word in your heart? Have you hidden it in your heart? Have you memorized it? Have you meditated upon it? 
and kept it as a treasure in your heart. If you treasure God's word, you will not sin against him. The Spirit leads you to treasure God's word in your heart as a great treasure. And that is how you mortify the deeds of the flesh. That is how you kill the sins that try to beset you. So, you study the word. Get in the word. Someone says the, the word will keep you away from sin. Or sin will keep you from the word. So which one do you pick? I would rather you get into the word and keep yourself away from sin that you may be able to overcome the deeds of the body. You also, it's not only about doing a, a heart surgery upon you, a heart check upon you. It's not only about you treasuring the word of God in your heart. You could keep it as a treasure and not use it. You also have to be obedient to the word. Paul says in Romans 6, 17, he says, But thanks be to God that you were slaves of sin, but you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching that to which you were committed. You became obedient from the heart. So the word that you have treasured in your heart, you become obedient to it from that same heart. The teachings, the word of God has entered into your heart, so you obey it. That is the last stage of mortifying the deeds of the flesh. When you obey the word of God in your heart, it shows that you have had victory over the deeds of the flesh. It shows totally that you have killed the deeds of the body, the actions of the body. It shows the victorious life of the believer of our sin. So I will love you. Let the word of God do a heart check upon you. Show you the intentions of your heart. Allow that same word. Ponder upon it. Think about it. Consider it yourself. Dead to the deeds of the flesh. Treasure the word of God in your heart. Make it a great treasure in your heart. Then obey it. Whatever the word of God says, obey it. And you see that you have been able to kill every form of sin in your life. Most of the additions I've struggled with in my life, this is the word, ways that I've been able to modify the deeds of the flesh within me. These are the ways that I've used to kill those sins, those addictions in my life. Now, not only killing sin through the Spirit, Paul gives us a positive about the Spirit, which leads me to my second point, the Spirit's leading. Verse 14 says, For as many as are being led by the Spirit of God, those go on being the sons of God. As many, as many. It's not about calling yourself a believer. It's about, are you being led by God's Spirit? You have to ask yourself that question. Am I being led by God's Spirit? You have to recognize the Spirit as your leader. 
The Spirit must be your guide. You must receive dictates from Him before you can know what to follow. When you know what to follow, then you are willing to follow. To be led by the Spirit means to go with the Spirit. You don't go ahead of the Spirit. If you are going ahead of the Spirit, then you are the leader of the Spirit. You don't dictate to the Spirit what the Spirit is to do or what you are to do. You don't give the Spirit orders. That means you are the leader and the Spirit is not the leader. Even Jesus himself was led by his spirit in Luke 4 verse 1. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the spirit in the wilderness. And if you go down, it says he was led by his spirit to be tempted by the devil. Notice he was led to temptation, not to sin. The spirit doesn't lead anyone to sin. Now, the leading that he uses in this test is primarily as regarding sanctification and not uh, guidance. On a wider context, it could apply to guidance because I see a lot of people quoting this test. For as many as are being led by the Spirit, they are the sons of God. And they quote it in the place of guidance. That is what the test is primarily talking about. That God has led me to do this. God has led me to give this. God has led me to this job. And so on and so forth. That is not what the text is talking about in context. It's talking about in sanctification, leading to holiness, leading to godliness. Let's look at Galatians 5, verse 16 to 18. It says, But I say to walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Walk side by side with the Spirit. And you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. You won't accomplish that desire of the flesh if the Spirit is living in you. If you are following the Spirit, if you are obedient to the Spirit, there's no way you will carry out the desire of the flesh. There's no way you carry out the deeds of the flesh. He said, for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under law. So the flesh and the spirit are in opposition to one another, they are enemies. They are not together. They don't work together. You can't walk side by side with the flesh and walk side by side with the spirit. They are in opposition. If you are walking side by side with the flesh, you are going to carry out the desire of the flesh. You are going to carry out the deeds of the body. But if you are walking side by side with the spirit, you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. You won't accomplish the fleshy desires that you have. This leading, in its sense, doesn't carry in its meaning a dragging or forcing that the Spirit forces you or drags you to be led. No. 
the leading comes with that authority that you must follow. That is the total difference. Not a forcing, but an authority that you must follow. For example, if you, if you are to come from the home where I come from, if my dad should send you a message or tell you that you are going to church, it's not giving you a, an opinion or a suggestion, but an order. It's an authority. It's a message of authority. And you have to obey. If you don't obey, you are going to face the consequences of not obeying. So it carries within it that authority. Just like when Jesus was doing miracles, he would tell someone, he would tell people, stand up and walk. Carry your mat and follow me. And when he spoke that, he spoke it with authority. And they obeyed. That is the way the leading of the Spirit is. It's very, very strong. It, the leading of the Spirit, when the Spirit is leading you towards sanctification, towards the writing, it comes very, very strong. Strong leading with authority. The Spirit leads with authority. The leading carries the leadership and followership in the term. The Spirit brings you along with Him. Carries you along. The Spirit doesn't leave you behind. It carries you along with Him. And say, walk side by side with me, that you may not accomplish the desires of your flesh. We all believe that we are sons of God through faith in Christ. Because scripture says so. But how can you be sure and know you are a son of God? Sons of God are peacemakers. Say, blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called the sons of God. Are you a peacemaker? Do you love making peace? I'm not talking about a form of ecumenism that just says we should. Because of, for the sake of truth, then we should have peace. When truth is at stake. And say, let's have unity. When someone is obviously teaching, a, uh, bringing a false teachings, and he says, let's just have peace, and we can just agree when the truth is at stake. No. That's not what peacemaking is about. It's entirely different. There are times that you don't, you are not meant to cause divisions. You are a peacemaker. You bring peace among people. Kind of a unity in the spirit. These are people who are united in the spirit. We can divide over doctrines. Over our understanding of scriptures. We do not know perfectly. But that doesn't mean it will affect us in our lives. Basically, that if we now see this our brother in need. Because it doesn't agree with me on my doctrine. Because it's not from my denomination. Then I can't help him. Because it's not from my denomination. Then he cannot minister to me. He cannot pray for me. Someone who is an heir. Uh, giving this first teaching. How can he pray for me? No. That's not what we are saying. You are a peacemaker. You love making peace. You love keeping the unity of the spirit. 
in the long run, a persecution should come about. And believers are being persecuted. Nobody is going to ask, are you a Catholic? Are you a Baptist? Are you an Anglican? The only thing all of you are going to recognize at that moment is that all of you are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you are going to live as one. Nobody is going to be asking the denomination about that moment. It says again that the sons of God are set apart. So if you claim to be a son of God, you have to be set apart. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 18 says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what partnership has light with darkness? What is the partnership do you have with lawless people? You are a righteous person. What do you have with sin? Sinful people. What fellowship has light with darkness? You are fellowshipping with God and there is no darkness in God. That is where your fellowship with, with. How can you still be having fellowship with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? What harmony has Christ with the devil? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? What is the commonality between you that is a believer and the unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with that of idols? You are the temple of God. What do you have with the temple of idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk about them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will be welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord of them. Almighty. Do not touch what is unclean. Come out from the midst and be separate, be set apart, be holy. Do not be worldly minded. Do not think like the world. Do not live like the world. Be set apart. Let them know that there is a difference between being a believer and an unbeliever. The way you live, the way you speak, let them be able to know that there is a culture of difference. That someone will be able to know this guy is a believer. Not an unbeliever. They can't confuse you. They can't make that mistake about that. Everything about you shows that you are set apart completely. For example, if you are, if you are living in Nigeria, for example, basically, if you uh, a deeper life uh, girl was passed by you. Everyone would just notice that. This one is certainly a deeper life member. That's why they were very, very popular. Because of their dressing. So, because of their set-apartness, their, their separateness from other people, we knew that this is certainly someone who attends deeper life church. You can recognize them from afar. Most of they are ladies. That is how you are to be set apart from the unbelievers. We are to know the difference. If you are a son of God. The leading of the spirit is not by various impulses. The spirit leads through God's word. Spirit leads you through God's word. You open your scriptures and this is what your scripture says. 
Your scripture says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Do not be bound with unbelievers. What does that mean? How does that relate? It means basically, for example, if you are to marry now, the Spirit will not lead you into marrying an unbeliever. If you see your Bible, do not steal. Do not commit uh, adultery. That is the Spirit leading you. The Spirit will lead you to adultery. It will lead you to steal. If you see your Bible, do not get drunk. Know that is the Spirit leading you not to get drunk. For example, you might have been wrong on a lot of things. Maybe you were someone who was very, very get, uh, drinking, uh, very addicted to alcohol and even getting drunk. Or for example, if you are a gluten before that love food and you come to the scriptures and find that gluten is a sin. If, for example, you are someone who was a borrower or a debtor, you come to the scriptures and find out that borrowing is a sin. Or you are someone that is very anxious, that is always worrying. You come to the scriptures and find out that worry is a sin. That is the Spirit of God leading you through the words. Those words are the leading of the Spirit. Because this is the Spirit-inspired word. The Spirit won't lead you against conscience. The Spirit won't tell you to do what you don't uh, want to do in your conscience. I know basically we may have some scruples that we all have going on. There must be some people that they have uh, some things against. Um, like I was hearing a minister, he said when they were growing up that they were taught against uh, um, driving bicycles on Sunday or even going out on Sundays or going to maybe beach on Sundays, going against going to swim pool on Sundays. That, that could be some scruples that you have from growing up. And the Holy Spirit will have to walk upon your conscience to say these things are not bad. These things are not sinful. But at the meantime, the Holy Spirit will lead you into the, that. Say anything that is done against conscience is sin. Anything that is done outside of faith is sin. So don't do anything against your conscience. The Holy Spirit won't lead you to eat something that is against your conscience and make you to commit sin. No. So we can all agree on that. The Spirit won't lead you in any way to sin, but it will lead you in holiness. Every way to holiness. People ask, how can we know? Can I do this and still be a Christian? What we are meant to ask is, how am I going to do this thing? How, this thing that I'm about to do, is it going to lead me in sanctification? Is it going to lead me in holiness? That's all we have to be asking. Is it pleasing to God? If I do this thing, is God going to be happy? Is God going to be pleased with me? That's what we should be asking. Not about whether we can do this and still be a believer. So check your life. Are you increasing in holiness? Are you increasing in godliness? Are you increasing in Christ-likeness? When is the Spirit leading you? You enjoy more of the assurance of salvation. You know for certain that I am a son of God. For as many as have been led by the Spirit are the sons of God. 
you know this is the right path to heaven. And for example, there are some ways that you may need the leading of the Spirit. You can ask Him through prayers, most prayers in areas where the Word of God does not prescribe. For example, in the matter of work, basically. Some people ask some kind of questions. Is working in a betting company? Because God cares about what, where we are working. Our work could be a sin to God. You may be working in an illegal company. You may be working as a, in a, uh, as a fraudster. That is basically sinful. So our work matters to God. So there are some kind of things that are kind of confusing. For example, people can ask, is working in a betting company bad? Is it sinful? Or is working in a smoking uh, in a company that makes cigarettes? Is it bad? Is it sinful? There's no scripture that says don't work in social and social company. All you have to do is what? Ask God in prayers. Ask this God through His Spirit to lead you to the right decision concerning these matters. Even in areas of even some movies, there's no scripture that prescribes watch social and social movies and don't watch this kind of movies. No scripture that prescribes listen to social and social songs and don't listen to this kind of songs. So you ask the Holy Spirit, the God, through prayer, that His Spirit will lead you in these areas that scriptures do not prescribe. My third point is the Spirit adoption. You have not received the Spirit. Indicates God has not given you the Spirit of slavery. It's God who gives the Spirit to His people. You don't demand or collect it when you like. God gives you. And you receive. You have not received the spirit of slavery. Hebrews 2 verse 15 says, And my free those Christ, my free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. When you were all in bondage to sin and law that leads to fear of death. That's why people who are living sinful lifestyles, they're always scared of the hellfire. It's always coming to them. They're always scared of death. Can you have a psychotic fear of hell? The Spirit doesn't lead you. The Spirit that you have received doesn't lead you to such kind of fear. Exodus 20 verse 18 to 20 says, And all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. And when then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But let no God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid for God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. So you see these people were motivated by fear. There was a lot of fear in their heart. I said this spirit that you have received doesn't lead you to this kind of fear. It was all they were saying, you know what they were saying? They said, said, but let God not speak to us or we will die. They are so scared of death. Hebrews 12, 18, 21 says, For you have not come to the to a mountain that can be touched, referencing to the Exodus passage, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet, and the sound of words which sound. 
was such that those who had begged that no further word be spoken to them, for they could not bear the command. Even even a beast touches the mouth, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. Full of fear and trembling. That is not the spirit you have received. Though we are to serve God with fear and trembling, with fear and how, but not that kind of fear that he's talking about. That kind of psychotic fear that makes you so scared all your Christian life that there's no joy. Living the kind of fear that am I going to make it to heaven in the long run? Am I going to make it to heaven in the long run? That, that isn't a victorious or joyful Christian life. First John 4. First John 2.28 says, Abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not strip away from him in shame at his coming. Are you abiding in Christ? Are you living in Christ? Are you, are you living a Christ-like lifestyle? Are you bearing fruits? Because if you do not abide in him, you can't bear fruit. If you are not doing this, then you are going to shrink away from him and have shame at his coming. 1 John 4, 7, 18 says, By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. So are you perfected in the love of God? Perfect love casts all fears. I notice it says, we will be confident in the day of judgment. Why? Because as he is, so are we in the world. As Christ lived when he was here in the world. Is that the way you are living now? As Christ is living to God in heaven. Is that the way you are living now to God? If you are living that way, then you can be confident in the day of judgment. The perfect love. Love has been perfected in you. And perfect love cast away all fears. It says you have no when you were in bondage, you feared the things, those things, sin, death, the law. But that is not the spirit you receive from God to go back into fear again. But you have received the spirit of adoption. Galatians 4 verse 5 to 7 says, So that he might deem those who were under the law, that we might receive their adoptions as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent for the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Christ came that you might redeem us from the law. He redeemed us from sin. He redeemed us from death. He redeemed us from the law. That what? Rather than fearing those things, rather than being slavery to this, that we might receive adoptions as sons. And that is what uh, Paul is saying. He says, For you have not received the spirit of slavery unto fear again, but you have received the spirit of divine adoptions as sons, in whom we go on crying, Abba, Father, what does adoption as sons mean? It means to place a son. You now possess the same rights as the parents' natural children. It means to formally and de- legally declare that someone who is not one's own child is henceforth to be treated and cared for as one's own child. 
including complete right of inheritance. The same way God treats Christ is the same way he treats us. The same way he cared for Christ, that is the same way he's caring for us. As his sons. And this is the present reality of adoption in this text. There's going to be a future reality of adoption. Romans 8.23 says, For not only, and not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruit of the Spirit, even we ourselves grow within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoptions as sons, the redemption of our body. Revelation 21.7 says, He overcomes when he these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. On that final day, there's going to be a future reality of the adoption as sons. I pray we all will be adopted as sons in that future reality. Let me explain this adoption as sons from the historical context. Throughout the Greek world, the wealthy and influential practice adoptions. Sometimes just a simple declaration in the marketplace turned a slave into a son. It was an ancient remedy used when a marriage failed to produce a male heir. No changed name came, but the adopted son immediately became heir to the entire wealth and position of his adoptive family. Conversely, the adopted son also assumed responsibility for the parents in their time of need. Adoption in the Greek and Roman world was a picture, a beautiful picture. His contemporary culture gave the Apostle Paul this word, but he gave the word a new Holy Spirit-inspired meaning. Only Paul uses this word to describe the relationship of believers to their Heavenly Father. No concept is more meaningful to a believer. For adoption deposits everything that God owes to the account of his sons and daughters. Adoption is all about position and privilege. Adoption, as was a commonly known legal procedure in the Hellenistic world, the most famous example being Julius Caesar's adoption of his great-nephew Octavius, who later succeeded him as the Emperor Caesar Augustus. Often a wealthy, childless man would adopt a young slave who would trade his Slavery for sonship and with all its commitment privileges, concomitant privileges, sorry. This adoption meant at least three things, all of which have spiritual parallels for believers who are now sons and daughters of God. One, it brought about a total break with the old family and a new family relation with all its rights, privileges, and responsibilities. The adopted person lost all rights in his old family and gained all the rights of a fully legitimate son in his new family. In the most literal sense and in the most binding legal way, he got a new father. Secondly, the adopted son became an heir to their new father's estate. No matter how many other sons there were at the time or how many were born thereafter, he was co-heir with them. This was not subject to change. Three, the old life of the adoptee was completely erased. All debts and obligations were legally cancelled. The adopted son was regarded by the law as a new person. William Barclay, a New Testament commentator, cites a case in Roman history that shows how completely this was true. The Roman emperor Claudius adopted Nero so that Nero could succeed him as emperor. Claudius had a daughter named Octavia. Nero wished to marry Octavia to see the alliance. Although they were not blood relations in the eyes of the law, they were now brother and sister and could not marry. The Roman Senate had to pass a special law in order for them to marry. 
In like manner, believers, when they are adopted, and removed from the authority of their previous father, Satan, and are given a new father, new father, they are guaranteed an inheritance with all the children of God. And as Paul explains later in Ephesians 1 verse 14, the Holy Spirit is the down payment and guarantee of their inheritance. The Spirit is also the witness that adoption has taken place. Finally, the adopted sons are now are new persons in that all their sins are forgiven and they have a clean slate before God. Another writer writes that when Paul was used adoption as sons, he may have had in mind the idea of true adoption as practiced in the Roman Empire at that time in history. Johnson goes on to say that a true adoption is the process by which an individual is taken out of one family and put in another family. In the Roman world, the family was based on what was called the Petra Protestas, that is the father's power. The father had absolute power over among the Romans. He not only had absolute power over his children, so far as disciplining them is concerned, but he had power over them as long as he lived. He could actually put children to death in the Roman law. In fact, even when a son became a magistrate, he was still under his own father. So for a child to be taken out of a Roman family and placed in another family was a very, very significant Dion Cassius tells us that the Roman law was the law of the Roman was, was, that the Roman law was that the law of the Romans gave a, a father absolute authority over his son, and that for the son's whole life it gives him authority. If he chooses to imprison him, to scourge him, to make him work on his estate as a slave in fetters, even to kill him. The right still continues to exist, even if the son is old enough to play an active part in political part affairs. Even if he's being judged at worthy to occupy the magistrate office, and even if he is held in honor by all men, it's quite true that when the father was judging his son, he was supposed to call the adult male members of the family into consultation. But it was not necessary that he should do so. There are actual instances of cases in which father did condemn his son unto death. Silas in the cal. Tillian conspiracy tells how his son, called Alus Fulvius, joined the rebel Catalan. He was arrested on the journey and brought back, and his father ordered that he should be put to death. The father did this on his own private authority. The father gave as his reason. He had begotten him, not for Catalan against his country, but for his country against Catalan. Under Roman law, a child could not possess anything, and any inheritance went to him or a gift given to him became the property of the father. So it was a serious step to take a child out of one family and put in another. The ritual of adoption has been very impressive. It was carried out by a symbolic seal in which copper and scales were used. Twice the real father sold his son, and twice he bought him back. Finally, he sold him a third time, and at the third seal, he did not buy him back. After this, the adopting father had to go to the perito one of the principal Roman magistrates, and plead the case for the adoption. And only after all this had been gone through was the adoption complete. The person who has been adopted had all the rights of a legitimate son in his new family and completely lost all the rights in his old family. And furthermore, all his debts were considered to be paid. He was a new person. Paul says, it is the spirit we go. It is in the spirit we go on crying, Abba, Father. 
This crying is a very strong word used here. It could mean screaming out. Like we have in Matthew 8.29. And it says, And they cried out, What business do we have with each other, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? These are the demons that were crying out. The same way Israelites screamed out of fear, we cry out and we cry out of fear of death. Same way we cry out to our father. For example, if someone was playing and wanted to stab you with a knife, you could scream out of fear. Don't do this. Like as if you wanted to die. The same way you scream, Abba, Father. This is not formed or forced. Something triggers this, which is, in, which is the spirit. It says, go on crying, Abba, Father, in the spirit. Almost like you are screaming or crying out for help. Jesus' disciples are a typical example. In Matthew 14, verse 30, verse 20 to 30, when the disciples saw him walking in the sea, they were terrified and said, He's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. Verse 30, when Peter, he had told Peter to walk out, he says, But seeing the wind, he became frightened and beginning to sing, he cried out, Lord, save me. Sometimes this crying out is a loud voice. Very loud voice. Abba Father was a word used by our Lord in Mark 14, 36. He says, and he was saying, Abba Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And it's in our moments of pain that we actually feel this, that we actually want to cry out to God. And our Lord Jesus Christ used it in prayer. Abba is an Aramaic word that means Father. It was a common term that expressed affection and confidence and trust. Abba signifies the close and intimate relationship of a father and a child, as well as the childlike trust that a young child puts in his daddy. Have you ever called God daddy? I would love you from today onward to try that in your prayer. Try calling God daddy and see how that changes the way you relate with him. I'm in a more intimate relationship with God as father.